Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to Product Coffee. This week, we have two new folks on the show, Caitlin Titus and Travis Hampton. They are two new Denver product managers that are on the show today. We're going to go into their background. So first, let's kick it off with Caitlin. Why don't you give us a little elevator pitch on yourself? Yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Caitlin Titus. I've been in Denver about two and a half years. Uh, Prior to that, I was over in the Atlanta product management world. I've been uh, primarily in ad tech since I uh, got my MBA. So I've got about nine years in ad tech, and then seven of those have been specifically as a product manager in ad tech. I focus primarily on digital video, and within that, streaming. So I think CTV and OTT, all that fun stuff. Thank you for uh, for having me. Yeah, Travis Hampton. I really started my career in management consulting and software development um, while living back in Nashville. Um, during uh, that time, I did an MBA um, in Nashville. And then after my MBA, I quickly jumped into a product manager role and I've been doing product for the last three and a half years, uh, mostly in the B2B and healthcare space. Thank you both for coming on the show. It's been great to you know get to know both of you over the last few months and Caitlin, even longer than that. But uh, it's, it's fun to hear, you know, the, the challenges that y'all have been kind of working through in your individual roles. And then we have like this industry craziness happening right now. Product is kind of in a weird state. There's so many layoffs in tech right now. Caitlin, you shared something in the Colorado product channel about senior product managers. I think, I don't know what the study was off the top of my head, but senior product managers are one of the highest likely to quit their jobs. Is that right? Yeah, it was a study. Uh, CNBC published it uh, in mid-December, and it was said that of the top 15 jobs people most want to quit, number one pays the most, about 144000 in senior product manager. People want to quit that. And if you dig into the article, it says there's just a lot of stress over turnover, changes, You know, I think a lot of mergers or issues with company performance. Maybe the startup isn't going as well. So just a lot of headwinds in that space. And then within the product manager role in general, I think there's been a lot of change in the past couple of years of over how people define it. You know, what, what's a product manager? What's a product owner? Do I do product management? Do I do project work? Like, what is the scope? And I think that really, you know, if you're not clearly defining it, can burn you out. Yeah. And I feel like it's different in any other company as well. Like as you bounce around, you kind of see and get exposed to different flavors of it. We have also the shift in venture funding as well, where VCs were funding for growth and revenue and now have switched to EBITDA and profitability. So now you have a whole bunch of companies that were used to working in a specific way with product, maybe they were getting close and now it's kind of blown up and it's something completely new. And so yeah. this is a, and you have on top of that generative AI, right? So there's a whole bunch of fun flavors of what's happening on the industry. Yeah, I don't know, Travis, if you have, have seen this as well, but um, I've seen kind of a decline in in job postings for this general growth product manager. And I started to see more specific type product manager roles. You know, I, I need a product manager for this platform or this device or this specific feature of a product. You know, have you seen something similar? I have, yeah. And I think that um, when I was looking at posts, um, particularly uh, looking at posts in the healthcare space, I saw a lot of um, you know product manager posts looking for experience in analytics, but also more specifically AI and, and ML. I mean that's that's the craze right now is you know building uh, large language models, building predictive models, building tools that have those AI and ML capabilities, and looking for not just product expertise but technical expertise in those areas uh, specifically. Travis, you just landed a new job. You've gone through the ringer of interviews. I'm in this phase as well, and I've been in that phase. And Caitlin, you were recently in this phase too. Now, you know, tell us a little bit more about how that process was like as you started to interview. I want to hear a little bit more about how has that process changed uh, if you've interviewed a lot. Like, what is is certain companies handling it a different way? Are they doing case studies? Are they doing more hiring manager one-on-ones? Like, what does that process look like today? Yeah, it was really interesting uh, going through this experience, being impacted by a layoff about eight weeks ago, and then you know starting the the interview process. And 
at first it started slow, um, you know, applied to as many positions as I could on LinkedIn, on other job boards, you know, working my, my network. And it really felt like it took a while to get traction. But then once I got in process with a handful of companies, you know, it started with the typical um, HR screen, um, you know, get, you know, kind of the basic intro. And then it moved into the, um, the classic um, case study, right? The, the product manager case study. And as I, I worked through these interview processes with different companies, um, I thought it was really interesting that there was such a variety of case studies and case study prompts that were presented to me um, during the uh, interview process. And so um, really got experience uh, practicing case studies, reviewing case studies uh, of different kinds. And you know, I think that's great for for any PM, um, whether they're, they're interviewing it or not, because odds are we're all going to be looking for a, a new position at some point and we're all going to face uh, different types of, uh, of case studies throughout our career. Yeah, that seems like a, a fun exercise to just have in your back pocket to be able to do one of those every once in a while to sharpen your skills. And it would be fun to like peer grade those things. But let's go into more detail. So I want to start first before we dive into the case studies. I want to start first with the applying process. So you're saying you're doing the LinkedIn job boards. What mm-hmm. actually landed you this job that you got? Was this a referral or was this something that you actually applied to? This particular position that I just started with was a referral. Um, it was a, um, a friend of a friend. I and mean, I was introduced to the CEO of, of this company and started the, the conversation there. Uh, and then the, the timing worked out. It was actually interesting. There wasn't a particular um, posting um, uh, available for, for this position. Uh, but again, it was just networking and, and being introduced to the right person at the right time. Yeah, I feel like uh, most recently, since the market is flooded with product people, the referrals is the path. So depending on how, how long you spend applying to these jobs, and you can probably automate these applications at this point with all these generative AI tools too and stitch it together. So it seems more meaningful and, and real to have a conversation with through a referral. Was that the case when uh, you were looking around, Caitlin, as well? Yeah, it was a, a mix of both. So I've had about, I would say maybe 50% of the jobs have just been me like applying in product and, you know, getting getting that first call from the hiring manager, submitting the resume and just crossing my fingers. And then more recently, as I've developed this product network, it's been uh, word of mouth, meeting people in person. Actually, Kevin, that's how I got my um, most recent job was actually talking to you. Like we uh, met each other in the Colorado product uh, group, uh, I think first on Slack and then at like a networking event. And then you mentioned, hey, I also work in ad tech. Why don't we get coffee? And from there, we just started talking about how your product org was growing and how there were opportunities. So it's, I think it's a mix of both. I don't want to skew one way or the other. You kind of have to look at the market and then start to figure out how you're going to strategize so yeah, I, I don't think that just applying or cold calling is a bad thing. I think it's good practice, like you're saying, but it's also really nice to have that network of, of friends and support in the product community. Yeah, absolutely. Travis, did you land, is the title senior product manager or is it something else? It is, yeah, a senior product manager role. I think both of you, right, have that that role and that title. And then we have this this uh, wanting to quit. Do you feel that urge? Is that the... Uh, is that the sentiment? Like, what are you kind of feeling from that article as well? Like, is that any, is there truth to that from what you're experiencing? I think there's some truth to it. I think as product managers, you know, one, the, it's a double-edged sword, right? The way that you're successful is that you're, you're very, you know, take charge. You're, you're hopefully like very good at influencing uh, behind the scenes, kind of these soft power, but then you also have this technical expertise. So those are a broad range of skills. And if you're, you know, interested in what you're doing, I think there's this tendency to just keep diving into it. And if you work remote or hybrid, those boundaries can get very blurry of, oh, well, I'll just pick up my phone and, and you know, check Slack while I'm cooking dinner. And so you're, you're just continuing to work and work and work and nobody's explicitly telling you not to. And since, hey, you're getting good feedback and you're doing a good job as a product manager, or you're really interested, I want to check out this article it can lead to this, you burn yourself out. So I think that's one function of it that I see. And then another function I see is this kind of nebulous job description. You'll land a role as a senior product manager or maybe even as a director and you have to navigate on your own. Well, how much of that work is is product 
versus maybe doing a little bit of the analytics or project management. Oh, and by the way, maybe you should mentor someone. You know, there, there's all this kind of not defined things in the role that can get, um, if you're not careful, can really pile on. Yeah, I feel like that is the crux of this point in time that we're at right now, where it's almost like a lack of definition of the role or expectations from leadership on the role that is causing kind of, and, not, and not, no clarity, right? So there's like, well, I can do a lot of things. And, but if your expectations are here and they're not communicated, then it leads me to burn myself out because I don't really know where to over index on. So I kind of do everything, you know, as much as I can and not exactly. really do the thing that, that where the expectations are aligned. So as a senior product manager, like how can how can other senior product managers get more clarity and specificity over what the expectations are from the executive leadership team? The answer is a simple answer, right? Just ask, you know, continue to ask and ask in a in a very, you know, explicit, persistent, but then professional way. Say, hey, like I am feeling pulled in a lot of different directions. I love to uh, talk to my VP or CPO. Let's have our product meeting together where we we really write down our North Star, what the product vision is, and then our OKRs tied to that. And then we can start to have these tactical discussions of you know what goes on the roadmap in which order. And I think that also having those discussions makes it clearer what we then say no to. And because we've had that alignment, we don't then have to go back to our stakeholders or go back to the CPO and constantly defend why we added something to the roadmap or kept it off. It becomes a much simpler discussion because we're all aligned. But taking the time to do that, it requires a lot of discipline, right? Like we we tend to kind of like privateers, right? We're, we're very much about let's get stuff done and let's get stuff shipped. But you know, you need to take a step back and think about what is the point of what you're shipping? Who is that serving? And then how does that forward the objectives of the business? Yeah. And I want to ask Travis, now that you're freshly started a role, I think you said this was your first day. Congratulations, by the way. How have you preset those expectations? Have you like talked with your hiring manager about those expectations coming into the role? Because this is like the prime time to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, um, I've definitely thought about that. Um, for this role, it's a, it's a little different because um, we're a consultancy. So we build software and product with, um, with other companies and, and, and with our customers. And so it's not only coming into to, you know, my team and, and my direct manager, who's our director of product, um, but also you know, talking with the engineering leads and the, and the team leads on the technical side as well to understand what their expectations are for someone coming into a product role and, and how I can serve the team and how I can work you know, with the engineering counterparts. And then there's that extra layer, that extra dynamic, you know, working with, with customers that you have to um, put in just a little bit of, of extra effort to go out and do that discovery and to, you know, work with the customer's executive team to really make sure that, that everyone is aligned and, um, you know, marching towards the, the same vision. So I'm um, super excited to kind of start that process. Like you said, you know, this is my first week. So really, um, you know, getting started um, in, in that process, but um, I think it's a fun process too because it's really a uh, an opportunity to, to to lay the foundation for a, a, you know a, a great relationship with with the customers and with the users and um, really you know jump right in. Yeah, and Travis, yeah. You, you have such a good point there that you know we need to be focusing on the customer, and you're coming in with fresh eyes. You you don't have kind of the the bad habits that once you get in your role and kind of are, are the default thought patterns that are harder to break. And I think back to that article we referenced earlier, Kevin, about the the burnout and the stress. I, I kind of wonder how much of that burnout is from business operations, you know, having to do a lot of this stakeholder management or review of OKRs, the change in management, the change of focus versus actually getting time to talk to customers and doing that quality discovery work. I know for me it's been it's been a real challenge and you know on me to make sure that I have a regular cadence with my customers, that I go out and meet them in person when I can and really start to understand what their needs are, document them and develop a relationship with them. That to me fills my cup versus only being in the office or in this case in my home office, you know, head down looking at my computer screen. Yeah. And I think that that brings up something really interesting that I wanted to t discuss with you too. So like, I think in management, in leadership, you're kind of designing the environment, right? You're designing the environment in an empowered model to build and innovate and, and consistently build 
great products. When you are building that environment, you have to be able to measure something to be able to determine whether or not that environment is quote unquote healthy, right? That it's, it's kind of doing the things that it's designed to do. Those metrics and, and kind of in the activities that happen can be measured, but measuring the wrong one can actually lead y'all into like a, in a, you know, maybe that environment design changes in a negative way. And so I'm curious to see like what activities do you track of yourself? It could be client calls that you take uh, a week. It could be uh, pivot or persevere conversations. It could be launches. It could be, you know, whatever those things are. What are those activities that you would measure to determine the health of an innovative product environment? Yeah, I think you brought up a good point about client calls. It's something I try to challenge myself to do is at least like two to three a week. And these are, you know, actual calls with, in this case, I work with advertisers or with the sellers. So like the account executives of these teams, I think that's one way that I measure. Um, Another thing I like to check myself on, I still like to count this, but I wouldn't say it's something that I, I strive for is this kind of drumbeat of uh, new products or new features. I like to see what I've done to make sure that we are innovating, right? That we are getting MVPs out. But I also like to look at this metric to make sure we don't become a feature team, that we're not just shipping things every two weeks just because we can. I like to kind of look at it and limit it or see if there's seasonality to it. And then finally, what I measure from those two is the customer satisfaction around that. Then that can be two things. Customer satisfaction to me can be like an NPS, a survey that comes back to us saying, you know, we really value this product. We want to use more of it. But more quantitatively, what I start to look at is performance around the products that I build. Is it actually driving the OKR that we set out to do? It could be making more money, simple as that. But it could also be something like really driving retention or customer adoption in a new area, growing market size. But I think looking at those three holistically, the um, customer um, client calls, the uh, drumbeat of meaningful products and features, and then looking at those measurement metrics at the end is what kind of holistically gives me a picture of, is this working and is this meaningful? Is that different for you, Travis? Are you seeing very similar things? Or? Yeah, no, I'm seeing a lot of similar things. I think um, what Caitlin said is, is spot on. I would agree with everything that she said. I think just in my own experience, you know, getting caught up on teams that you know, are, you know, so focused on just shipping and delivering and focused on velocity and performance, um, especially in a scrum environment, um, teams can really get detached from, you know, ultimately driving those business metrics and the, those those OKRs. And so really being focused on um, not just building and shipping, but also really, you know, improving company performance, user satisfaction, and, um, you know, innovating in ways that ultimately um, allow the company to be more competitive, take market share and and do things of, of that nature. So I was just trying to kind of fight that urge to just always be delivering new features and really focus on value and driving those metrics. And sometimes that can come in the form of not delivering as fast, um, but ultimately to more success for the business. Yeah, and I, I think some of that is education as well, right? I, I think in some companies I've worked for, mm-hmm. um, right. stakeholders have seen product as just feature delivery teams, like just output teams. How many widgets can you make? How many tweaks to the widget? But I think, you know, as we, we've started to evolve product in the last, what, 20 to 30 years, it's on product, not, not the stakeholders. It's on us to go and help explain and influence and get alignment with other stakeholders and, and business leads to understand the true value of product is not just in shipping things, but it's in creating the, these meaningful points of contact with our customers to build that relationship and to grow the business. Yeah. So I think you're you're building the holistic picture of not just shipping, but what else, right? This is conditional. And I think the activities that y'all can start to measure um, to round that out, to make sure that we're doing the things, to be able to show that, you know, we're not just doing nothing, we're doing these things, is to to hone in on those key, you know, activities that lead to that end result. And so if you look at the client calls as a good example, that's one example of what else it could be, you know, experiment launched, it could be, you know, uh, test results reviewed, right? It's not necessarily that we shipped a feature and it's in the hands of a customer or, you know, or it could be, I mean, it just, what are those activities that lead to that overall satisfaction going up for your product line? I think something to 
hone in on and really focus to really help communicate exactly what Caitlin's talking about to the rest of the folks to make sure to say, hey, this is not traditional, you know, what you're used to waterfall type of product management. We don't just ship features. We do this at a level of quality that is, is sustaining and, and, and helps uh, drive satisfaction. So the smarter you can get at like measuring and communicating those activities, the better off, I think, maybe makes it easier to manage those relationships, making it less likely for y'all to burn out and uh, eventually quit. Let's steer the conversation a little bit for the second half. Since we are talking about interviews and formats and activities and all this stuff, I thought we could kind of go through an example workshop as a group and, and talk about at each stage how we would process this ourselves. So before we do that, what are some of the, since Travis, I'm going to put you on the the spot here, what are some of the kind of prompts that you've heard recently to uh, kickstart this case study? Yeah, as I was going through the interview process recently with different companies, I found it interesting to um, that I encountered such a variety of, of you know, product manager case study interviews. So as I was preparing, I, you know, prepared for the classic case studies, you know, you know, how would you drive innovation? How would you improve our product? You know, things like that and uh, doing that, that research. But the three different types of case studies that I encountered during my interview process, um, one was a, a live case study. So there was no opportunity to prepare. They didn't share the question with, with me ahead of time. They didn't um, you know, provide any guidance. It was show up 30 minutes with the hiring manager and the hiring manager live you know, articulated the, the problem verbally. We discussed it to ask questions. And then it was, okay, how would you solve th this problem? So it was really on the fly. How do you think? How do you ask questions? How do you collaborate? Um, and I thought that was a really interesting and a really cool way to, uh, to do a case study. The other two were a bit different. One was, um, it was a, a short two page document providing some context for the, for the, for the company, for the business, um, where the business at, how it got to where it is today. And then there was four prompts. Um, with different uh, questions. One was entering a new market. One was how to build success with the product team. Product was still kind of fairly new with this company and, and immature and growing. Um, the other was pressure to innovate. And then the um, final one was um, around uh, dealing with infrastructure challenges and in a product that was trying to scale. So um, reading the context, reading the background of the company, and then picking two of those prompts. And then there was no guidance on how to come back and prepare um, this case study interview um, that, you know, the, you know, hiring manager said it could be a verbal presentation, a short word document, spreadsheet slides, whatever, you know, the, the interviewee feels comfortable with. So um, for that one in particular, created um, a couple of short slides and, and walked through that with the, with the hiring team. And then the final one was a bring your own. It was a bring your own case study, which I thought was, was, was really cool. So um, it was, um, Tell us about a problem that, that you've worked on. Tell us about a project that you've worked on. Um, tell us about the value you were trying to drive for the end users, the OKRs, the business metrics that you were trying to move. And then um, ultimately tell us um, how you or how me as a, as a product manager impacted um, this. You know, what was your role on the team? How did you influence? How did you collaborate? And mm -hmm. um, it's cool to prepare that and to bring my own case study through that, that interview process. So those, th those three different types were, were very different, but I thought they really hit on um, so, some different things in a, in a really interesting way. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, have you seen anything different on your side? I was just thinking about this. So um, I did a couple of job interviews and I've been at my current role for about a year. So I'm about a year behind Travis, but I've done the first and the third one. I haven't done the second one as much. So the first one is kind of that live, you know, the the a la Google method of tell us about, or here's a scenario, now pitch a solution and you better have your product template ready, which we can discuss later. And then I've also been in scenarios, actually in almost every product role I've been in, I've had that sh bring us your case study and sh basically show us how you think as a product manager and how you uh, delivered success at your previous company. And I think that one's pretty fun because you get to show off a little bit, you know, you get to kind of get excited about something you did deliver that was that was fantastic. And then the the kind of prickly part, though, is that you're usually in a panel discussion for this and people try to poke holes in you and play devil's advocate, which you 
you uh, need to be prepared for. They'll do that regardless of whatever <laughs> format it is. The one I like out of the three the most is the third. The, I think that what you've done in the past actually tells you more about your what you will do in the future. Um, this is like a user interview tactic, right? So it's like you ask about their lives and their decisions. You you learn more about the individual than you would about a hypothetical. Like, what would you do? It's like, it's like, ah, yeah, okay. Anyone would, would do that. But what did you do is, is really more telling. So I love leading yeah. with those types of things in the, in the process. Maybe what we could, could do, because I think the live case study is also, it does tell you something else is how you make decisions in the moment. Maybe we can do one of those and see kind of how, where that takes us, knowing that these could be hypotheticals and not tell us a lot. But what do y'all think about that? Yeah, let's do it. Travis, since you're fresh, what are the hypotheticals that you heard? Yeah, the one that I encountered was a, a user drop-off scenario during the sign-in process. So um, we have a platform. We need users to sign up for the new platform. There's a workflow of, of user input data that the user has to go through a multi-step process to sign up for, um, for the new platform. And um, we're experiencing drop-off at, di at different points in the sign-on process. So how would you go about solving the, this problem? Great. So now, Caitlin, you have the template that you would bring to these type of prompts. Yeah. So I actually was going to, I thought about this um, in reference to what I did in the past and what I would do in the future. So I'll, I'll give kind of two scenarios. So in the past, I do have a, a product management kind of template that I've used. So it's, you know, very much kind of state the question that was posed, make sure that you heard it correctly, and then have the interviewer say, hey, you know, I think you might have missed this piece or no, it sounds like you really got the gist of it. And then what I like to do is state assumptions moving forward for that use case and then start to talk about how you would change things and change things one at a time, right? Like what would you look for? What would you not? How would I drive user adoption? And then I always like to highlight the key resources, right? I think one thing they're looking for in the questions and the answers to these, these interviews, especially in the live, is that you're trying to remember and communicate that you are not on an island, that you can collaborate and work with others. So really speaking to, I'm going to pull in these teams. I'm going to ask my engineers this. I'm really going to get a, a deep understanding of who the customer is from my client success team, things like that. And then once you do that, start to think about, how you want to build this. What is your minimum viable product? What's the MVP look like? And then how would you grow that? Start to think about a timeline. Then talk about any risks that you had with that, how you'd get to launch. And then finally, what I like to do to wrap up is say, hey, this is where you know I think we could have a successful launch. But these are a couple of things that if I had more time to talk to you, I'd like to go into greater detail. All right, now I'm in a parking lot. And so that really helps them understand that you are thinking through things that you're not just trying to fast pitch as much as possible and that you are thoughtful about what you would have talked about if you had more time. And that's what I would have done in the past. I think that's a great way to start these things. But what I would do moving forward is really start to harness like a chat GPT. This is hard to do in live. So I'm not sure this is quite the, the, the answer for a live one, but I would love to, maybe you could do it in live, honestly, is use a chat GPT model that you built and kind of start typing while the interview answers, you know, begins the question. And then the GPT could really help you with the template and prompt to help get you those answers. The GPT is not answering for you. You have built the GPT to help build a system and a template that gets you to that answer. What do you guys think? That's interesting. I've never experimented with that, but I do find as more AI becomes usable and super readily available like this, it's for me, it's a little bit harder to incorporate it in the right way. I like prepping with it. Like what you're saying is like popping out a good template to, you know, orient a question around or that kind of thing. I've even done like some light jobs to be done research with it. That it was actually really fun and helpful. But uh, yeah, live, I don't know. I For me, I, it would be hard to pay attention. Uh, yeah. I, but maybe, yeah, I'm sure others, maybe it's easier, but it's for me, I yeah, I like prepping with it, I think. And then maybe using that to like reference. I think that's kind of what you said. But what do you think, Travis? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, um, you know, ChatGPT live um, would be kind of tricky. I, I would personally be be nervous about it. I might try it on one interview, though, to see how it goes. Um, yeah. But I definitely use ChatGPT to prep, um, to provide new case study prompts, to provide new questions yeah. that um, I could practice with. 
And, um, you know, just the experience of facing a new question, working through it, thinking about yeah. the problem. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I would turn it back to, to the GPT and say, how would you solve this? What framework would you apply um, to this? Just to kind of see, okay, this is how I would answer, but let's see, you know, what the internet comes back with. So yeah, uh, that's I, such a good point about like you can, you try to answer it yourself and then you ask it, Hey, well, what do you think Melissa Torres would say? Or mm-hmm. what do you think Marty Kagan would say? And then you can kind of look at those answers again, maybe not in live, obviously, but it, it is something to think about. Like, hi, I love it because it helps you kind of identify things you didn't think of originally or thought mm-hmm. patterns that, you know, are from a different person that you can help kind of input into your own templates. For this user sign-on problem, I agree with everything that that Caitlin said. I, I think that um, all of that is is spot on. One thing that I would, um, you know, be asking the interviewer for is just more data, more current data on the, the sign-on process. And, um, it, you know, there's, was articulated a problem in, in user drop-off during the sign-on flow. What is that baseline? Where are we at today with the, um, with the, with the current drop-off rate? And what does success look like? What's that benchmark that, that we want to get to, um, on the sign-on rate? And, um, then as Caitlin said, kind of testing things one at a time. How can we streamline the process? How can we build something? perhaps a little bit more simple. Maybe there's data integration where we can auto-populate some of these fields um, and then slowly work towards um, what that success metric is and, and what that acceptable um, sign-on rate should be. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a really systematic way to do it that adds to to kind of the template I, I started with. So I, I appreciate that. The one thing I'll say to push back just a little bit is that I've been in interviews where you'll ask for more data or, hey, what do you, you know, what's the benchmark? And they'll say, will you tell us? So be prepared to have those assumptions and state them clearly and say, you know, you're asking me to give you a benchmark. My benchmark is X because of these three reasons. And then keep going. More importantly there, I would think like, think about if you don't have an answer in the back of your pocket, because that's really not what they're looking for is the process to get the answer. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know what the benchmark would be, but how I would find that is I would, I would survey, I would go research, I would go find this. And if I did that, you know, what we could say as a guesstimate right now is this, right? Um, but the, I would still need to go through that process to be confident in the answer. And so you can kind of say something point. like that too. We just did the three tiers of answering it. Get more data <laughs> if you don't have data. Make your own. If you can't make your own, then even more meta, talk about how you yeah. would find it. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah I think it, it love the the brain types we got going on in this this call. It's it's fun. I think what uh, with folks that are neurodivergent, it's challenging when it's very um, on the spot questioning, like you're getting quizzed, and so typically the brain kind of uh, doesn't work. Sometimes doesn't work well in those scenarios, and and you kind of have to, you know, rely on oh, here's what I would do versus like giving a straight up answer quickly and like. Uh, there's a whole other thing we can get into there with neurodivergence and in, in this this process too, because I feel like it's 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 a fun one. But back to what Travis mentioned about that third, you know, the third case study, and Kevin, you had said is it was one of the best ways to to judge or understand how good someone is at product. It's not actually putting them on the spot, like both of you said. It's asking them to talk mm-hmm. about something they did in the past where they were successful, so they can talk about, exactly. yeah. you know, how they worked and what how their process was, and you really get to see them uh, show that you know you, you get to feel their success. And for people who are neurodivergent or just think differently, that can be a really fantastic way to to showcase your skills. And I've seen a lot of that moving forward. I don't see as many questions that are like, you know, tell me about how many marbles you can fit on a plane. Like th- that doesn't really showcase any kind of product success, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And that's exactly why I like the past type of questions too. I want to get specific with our question. And then I actually want to use some of the things we talked about to see how we how we could solve this, how we can, how our product brains would work to this question. So Maybe, Caitlin, if you have your template of the process you would go through, we can kind of use that. Uh, we can just go around Robin, whatever works. The how might we questions I'll have is going to be based on the article that you sent, the jobs people most want to quit. Let's see. We have five to pick from, thanks to ChatGPT, and I'll, I'll have you all <laughs> be able to pick one. How might we redesign high-paying jobs to increase employee satisfaction and reduce the desire to quit is number one. 
How might we identify the key factors that led to the job dissatisfaction in high-paying roles? Number two. Number three is how might we support employees in high-stress, high-paying jobs to improve their work-life balance? Number three. Number four is how might we better align high-paying jobs with the personal and professional goals of employees? That's number four. And number five is how might we create more meaningful and fulfilling work experiences in jobs that are traditionally seen as highly lucrative? Which one do you want to... My God, it's thinking number two. Can you read that one again? How might we identify the key factors that led to job dissatisfaction in high-paying roles? Here's my argument for maybe going into number two is that I feel like we could do a really kind of like a five whys to get to (laughs) what core issues are to then build on maybe question, especially question five. Like, I feel like you need to do question two before you do question five. That's sure. Just a thought. Some research. What do you think, Travis? Yeah, I like it. All right. Easy enough. Let's go through it. So how might we identify the key factors that led to job dissatisfaction in high paying roles? How are we going to tackle this prompt? Any ideas? I mean, I love the five whys to start there. You know, why are you dissatisfied? Okay, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? So if you want to start with that. So you're saying that the way that you would answer this or come to that uh, conclusion is Mm -hmm. interviewing folks in the state and asking them, why are you dissatisfied? Yeah. How would you approach that? How do we know who the high paying roles? How do we know who those people are? How are we going to target them? How are we going to talk to them? I think the the articles at the benchmark of um, high paying is anything over six figures. So we could speak maybe to the article's author or, you know, I'm assuming we are in product roles, maybe we could speak to our coworkers and just anecdotally get some some kind of qualitative research done of, hey, like, how are you feeling in this role? Or are you feeling stressed or not? Are you feeling burned out? Or even talk to people in, you know, like a, a professional organization that you're part of, or if you're in like a run club or something where you can kind of have these more generalized conversations. Those are some places to start. This is not so enterprisey and hard to access a customer. You could do a LinkedIn post too, right? If you really want to get scale or you're looking specifically for hyper-professional, right? I've seen really good traction lately on LinkedIn with people who are asking questions and posts. And then I've seen a lot of engagement on those questions. I think that's where my head was going as well, is how can we get as much data as possible, as quick as possible, um, but also not guide um, the respondents or the, or the users. So can we post just a quick, you know, one to three question survey Um, asking about satisfaction, asking about stress, asking about burnout, and then maybe a free form of why. And then from all of those answers, maybe we can collect a couple thousand answers, um, start to read through those and extract some themes and um, maybe categorize those different whys, those different answers into a few different buckets and then um, start testing some different things um, from that point. I think that's such a good point about asking it in a way that's not leading that doesn't seem like you're influencing. You're really trying to get what you know what we like to call it clean data or as unbiased as you can. So that's a good point. I think the first thing for this article, I would kind of see where the original article was um, or the study was and see if there's like a comment section to see if mm-hmm. I have any corroboration of like, oh yeah, I'm in that role and it sucks or whatever. I would also, you know, I think Caitlin, you did this, but you posted it in a product community that's pretty large and you had a lot of people comment on that. So that could be a great source to collect some folks as well. My thought in posting it was I, you know, back to our product hats, right? I wanted to test the assumption. Okay. The article says that people want to quit this job. I mean, I'm an N of one. I don't want to quit my job, but in my professional organization, I'd love to hear, like, I I trust these people's opinions and I I just want to see, is this kind of a, one of those doom and gloom, you know, get the click article or is there some truth to it? I love that. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, those are some ways that it seems like you can easily collect some folks that are willing to, to talk more about it because they're already vocal on an online presence too. I think the other ones here might be, if we could find a way to measure folks that did quit recently and target them to talk about it. So I think blind was a really good example. I don't know if y'all have used that before, but it's like a you can log in with your work email and it's like completely anonymous and you can kind of see folks that are complaining about their organization. So I think that could be a good source too, because it's that's the that's where the activity is. But it sounds like we have a lot of different options to kind of source the pool of candidates to interview, utilizing those five whys to get to a source or a root cause of this. Let's say we are doing that. So how are you thinking of like vetting, scheduling, 
talking to these people, the questions you would ask. Are you recording it? Are you taking notes? I'm a big note taker. I love to go back and reference my material. I know, Kevin, you're a big uh, recorder. You like to kind of listen back. So I think whatever your strength is there, how you learn, how you process, definitely uh, hone in on that. Um, and then, you know, to pick up on, on what Travis said earlier about not influencing, once you have these um, questions and maybe in the questionnaire, we, you know, say, if, if you want to do a 15 minute interview, give us your email. Let's say we get down to that pool of candidates. Uh, one thing you have to think about as a product manager is, is asking really open ended questions. You know, tell me about a time when or what's gone on or explain something that happened in the past. I don't really like to ask like forward questions because when we ask forward questions or what would you do differently or what would you do in the future, we tend to, as humans, really idealize ourselves or make ourselves like, you know, this is what we would do. But really what I want to understand is the the actual behavior, the actual feeling that you had. Um, but I do also kind of like to ask questions that are, that are um, inspirational or, or kind of like, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, I think, what would you change? Because that does put people more in reality. You're not thinking of some distinct future, you're thinking about what happened in the past that you would have changed. So how, how you ask those questions, I think is important. In terms of scheduling and sourcing, I think I like using a form to pre-vet candidates. So having those questions ahead of time, what is your role? What is your previous role? Did you quit your job? Like that in a form, much easier mm -hmm. than like, you know, email communication. It's more, more expedient. And you can kind of easily source candidates, still collecting email addresses for later, what have you, but you really get the prompt of someone wanting to sp speak about this information. So makes those interviews a little bit more efficient. And in that routing form, you can easily hook it up to your calendar so they can easily book a meeting. So all that stuff can kind of be automated for you um, and just pre-bake it into that routing and, and, and sign up form. And then when they're, you know, you're truly talking to somebody that you're going to get a meaningful insight on once they do schedule it. In terms of the questions, I agree with Caitlin, like the, the history, ask about in, asking about their life's moments in time, things that pushed or pulled them in different directions. That's going to give you more answers. Let's say that we've gone through that process and let's say that I like to target at least, you know, 10 folks or, or you know, I wouldn't maybe go more than that to start seeing patterns and you could probably see patterns in the data from the responses still looking at other qualitative data as well to pair with this. Let's say that we do have an answer here. I don't know what the answer would be right now, but let's say that we're moving on to question five based on what we learned from that. We can even uh, suppose an answer. Question five was, how might we create more meaningful and fulfilling work experiences in jobs that are traditionally seen as highly lucrative? And so if that was the prompt based on this research of uncovering it with the five whys or this customer interview technique, how would we then go start shifting our mind to solutioning from problem exploration? I would jump into designing a, a role and then testing that design um, with, with people. Um, so with that small set of, of, of beta users or of, of people that were that are in these high paying roles that are dissatisfied. And um, I guess I would start with the assumptions of just you know, basic psychology, right? Autonomy, freedom, ability to um, to solve problems and to um, to really make a, a, an impact. I mean, those are all things that are very rewarding for people and um, you know, really key components to the empowered model that, that we all know about working in, in the product world. And so I think how can we design a role um, that gives people those components and um, lets them feel like they're in control, like they're driving impact and that they're really making difference um, for their company and for their users. And um, when we can get those in place and we can measure those and really help people start to realize that they are achieving those things, then I think that um, we you know, might, might have a, an opportunity to, to move this metric and then move people from a place of dissatisfaction towards satisfaction. So that would be kind of where I would start, how I'd go about doing that. Um, I'd love to get, get you know, thoughts from you guys, but um, I think it would just be kind of a, an iterative testing process to, to set up roles and to um, have meaningful conversations um, in those directions. Think about, to build on what you said, those are great points, is um, how to actually run those tests. So one, a few things I think about are, um, let's say that the employee says, you know, I just spend too much time, at, or th that's a, th a, tr a trend. Like we, we spend too much time, uh, I'm working too many hours well then we could have an experiment where we mandate black shuts off at 5 p.m in your time zone like mandate it and and follow through 
if someone slacks a 501, call them out. Say, hey, you're not supposed to be slacking right now. Like really be be accountable there. Um, we could also run experiments where, you know, I worked at companies where you have summer Fridays where you get a half day uh, from like Memorial Day to Labor Day. Well, why don't we extend that from Labor Day to Christmas? See if that, you know, boosts morale. Um, another thing I would test, uh, I work with HR here is sometimes what I've heard from employee dissatisfaction isn't necessarily the, the job um, title, but it can be something like job benefits, right? So can we work with HR to maybe give more of a stipend for gym membership? What if we paid the uh, internet for your remote employees? I'm assuming that usually gets done, but let's say that is it. Um, what if we went back to our executive team about starting to match a 401k? Can we do that? Things like that, you know, looking at the other side of the job that's not just product, but if we're thinking about high paying jobs, I'm sure there's certainly some benefits that we could leverage and, and break out and test and experiment on. Yeah, I love the tackling benefits as, as part of the meaningful or fulfilling work experiences. I think that what it comes down to is a little bit of what Travis was talking about, the psychological component of this, of what the basic needs and that kind of stuff of, of fulfilling. And But I think you can tackle this a lot of different ways. I think the best way to approach it is that iterative process of a lot of different things, maybe some more leaning with intuition since we've been in the roles. We can probably lean with what would I like, right? And solve for our problems first and then see if that helps solve for these folks. But I would re-engage with these initial folks that we interviewed, right? I would want to follow up with them and say, you know, hey, it's not like a what if, but you could even test a lightweight prototype or something with them to understand, would this be interesting or not? Long term, you could even get a recruiter involved or pose as a recruiter and say, hey, I have these roles and then this is what it entails. Would you be interested? And, you know, whoever picks up the phone, maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, telling you something, right? I mean, there's probably a level of <laughs> um, uh, commitment that you want to put to that before exposing the, the experiment. But um, in the job, let's say that you're doing it for the PMs in your job as, a, as an executive team, I think that a lot of the things we were talking about today, measuring those key activities, talking about satisfaction of the team and does that go up over time and what are those activities that lead to that satisfaction going up over time, really understanding that and where are they getting burnt out? Are they in meetings all day? Like those kind of core components that we know that burn us out, we can actually measure for and say, is that happening or not and why? Let's understand it and tackle those problems and say, well, do they have some false expectation of I have to have a million meetings on my calendar to be productive or, you know, what are we measuring? So if it's not clear if we're measuring the right activity pr- to produce that satisfying well-being behavior, maybe we make that evident. It's like, I don't care how many meetings you are. All we care about is how many of these did you have? Like how many customer interviews? That's it. Or whatever that number is, right? Then that might help PMs take control over their career to say, well, it's not everything because you're not being clear. It's the things you're being clear about that I'm going to hone in and focus in on and crush. Totally. I love the way you're reframing that to think that, you know, ultimately the goal is to give more power and control back to the PMs, back to this group that feels very burnt out. And the way to do that, though, is to help develop these systems that then empower autonomy, like Travis, you mentioned, right? Like it's it's this... Um, sometimes we feel like we don't have the power and we do, we have more, we don't have a ton of control. We don't control over everything in the world, but we do have a little bit more control than maybe sometimes we think. It's just how we've designed the system around us. So how can we experiment to make that system better for the PMs? Thank you all for joining and you know putting yourself out here on the show. For context for the listeners, um, Travis reached out. We connected uh, to Caitlin actually, and you know we had talked a lot, and we decided to come have him come on the podcast. So reach out, you know, if you want to come on and talk about something, and you feel passionate about a topic, and you can speak from your own experience. I think those are the type of folks that we're trying to look to bring on to the show. So feel free to reach out. You can always go to productcoffeepodcast.com to check that out. We always wrap things up with homework before we close things out. So let's go around the horn. What from our conversation this week for our listeners, can you give or assign us homework for the next week? Yeah, I have two pieces, I think. And I'll say, you know, the first is um, get to know chat GPT, like play around with it, really start to use it for ideating, for brainstorming and get very good at prompting understand how to write clear instructions for it, understand the context and the the text that you need to provide it. 
understand how you need to feed it tasks to get it out the output high quality so that you can use it. And I'm not saying that you will use ChatGPT and it will solve everything and be magical. But I will say, I think it's a tool that uh, product managers are going to continue to need to learn and leverage moving forward. So get comfortable with it. And then the second piece of advice is, um, you know, if you are feeling burnt out, if you are feeling dissatisfied in your job, reach out to someone, reach out to uh, someone, a fellow product manager, reach out to um, your manager, reach out to, you know, maybe a classmate from college, but just have a conversation with them and, and get vulnerable, be honest and about what's what's making you feel this way. And then hopefully they can help you understand what you can and can't control and decisions you have moving forward. Yeah, I think that's great advice and, and great homework. And just to build on on what Caitlin said, I, I would just say practice. Um, you know, don't get caught flat-footed um, preparing for product manager interviews um, in your career going forward. If you're an entry-level product manager or a senior product manager, um, you'll become a better product manager by practicing case studies, by practicing interviewing, by practicing these prompts, whether you're interviewing or not. And so I would just say practice. And then also um, put yourself in the interviewer's shoes. You know, you know, try to role play with yourself or with a friend or with someone in product who is a director or a VP or a chief product officer. And how would you evaluate a senior product manager that you might be hiring? How would you evaluate an entry-level product manager? What would be those things that you'd be looking for? And um, you know, try to play both roles and uh, just practice doing it regularly throughout your career. I think that, that you'll find that you'll become a better product manager for it. I'll add to it. I like the practice element of this. If you can find a mentor or, or someone in your career that can give you that direct feedback, try to make that happen. We're debating whether or not to do that here at Product Coffee to make that available for folks if they are interested. So let us know if you are and we can get that set up. Hopefully, you know, my, my biggest homework is just reflect and don't forget about your needs in your job and your role as, as a person and don't sacrifice those needs and, and seek clarity, seek context. This is your life. You don't want to be burnt out for you know the people in your life. Make sure you're cognizant and aware and having those self-reflective moments actually helps you out a lot. So keep that in mind. Thank you both for coming on the show so much. Appreciate your time. Uh, anywhere that folks, if you guys desire to be reached, where they can reach you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Caitlin Titus, uh, feel free to to send me an invite. Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best for me as well. Travis Hampton, find me and connect with me on LinkedIn. We'd love to chat. Cool. I'll link you all out in the description. And uh, if you do find them, tell them that Product Coffee sent you. Looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.